Welcome to the Interim Leader Podcast, brought to you by Odgers Interim, the UK's leading provider of interim management services. My name is Grant Speed, the Managing Director of Odgers Interim and host of this podcast. In the very first of our Interim Leader series, we take a look at the importance of the University Vice-Chancellor. My guest on today's episode is Sarah Shaw. Sarah is a partner here at Odgers Interim and head of our education practice. She specialised in the education sector for over 10 years and has worked with the full spectrum of higher education institutions and business schools in the UK. Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much. The role of the University Vice-Chancellor has been one of contention recently and in particular their pay has been very much thrust into the spotlight. Can you tell me why they're under such scrutiny? Well, the vast majority of universities in this country are public authorities, so of course there is scrutiny, and you can argue it's very fair that they are scrutinised. But we've got to remember that since 2012, they've been funded in a different way and not directly from government, but via student fees. And in fact, the students have to pay those back via the student loans company. They also receive income via research grants and also from commercial ventures, so basically from non-taxpayer revenues. I think it's also fair to say that really it's only a handful of vice-chancellors who are paid more than £400,000 per annum. So possibly it's only a few that are really under scrutiny. That's really interesting. So I'm guessing, would it make more sense if we compared vice-chancellors' pay with chief executives in the private sector? I think actually it possibly would. But I also think we need to look at the size and scale of universities, which of course vary enormously as with those in the private sector, where again there's great disparity between companies. I think what's really important is the transparency and therefore the justification on how pay is determined for each individual vice-chancellor. So I read recently that the government has vowed to, um, to put laser-like focus on the pay of vice-chancellors in the UK. Has anything actually happened as a result of that rhetoric? Actually, I think there has. Uh, Just in June, the Committee of University Chairs, they published the final version of a new voluntary code, and it was actually around exactly this. So institutions are going to have to justify their vice-chancellor's pay if it is in the highest quartile, and they've got to publish the pay multiple of the vice-chancellor compared to the average earnings of the whole workforce. Also, the Vice-Chancellor won't be able to sit on their own remuneration committee and therefore not be directly involved in decisions around their own pay. Then there's the new Office for Students and they're going to be publishing details of total remuneration packages. So historically there was criticism and it was particularly levelled against Vice-Chancellors who had, for example, Grace and Favour houses and chauffeured limousines. I think it was these trappings which pushed up the total pay and possibly above the odds and this is probably what was most unpalatable to the public. So, so it's interesting, isn't it? So the, the new University of Bath Vice-Chancellor it will earn something like £200,000 less than her predecessor, which is a significant amount of money. Do you see this as a trend going forward? I think you could argue it's a trend, but maybe it's possibly more of just a correction. I think overall we're going to have to look wider than the university sector in the UK when it comes to attracting talent and we've got to look more and more possibly overseas. So we need to therefore consider the pay of vice-chancellors in other countries. 
So if we take Australia as an example, there are 38 public funded universities there. And in 2016, the average pay was 890,000 Australian dollars. And that is just about the equivalent of just under half a million pounds. And 12 of the vice chancellors there were paid more than 1 million Australian dollars. Then if we look at the US, the vice chancellor at New York University, well last year he earned a total of 1.8 million, that's American dollars. And that included a penthouse apartment overlooking Washington Square. Given that level of pay in countries overseas, are we going to see a brain drain in the UK of our best talent, our best vice chancellors heading abroad for these opportunities? I don't think we're going to yet see a brain drain. However, I think we are beginning to see people returning to their home countries who maybe came over here five years ago to take up tenure as a vice chancellor. So where historically we've been able to attract people from across the globe, we are now actually seeing examples of them, as we said, going back. So if we look at the Vice-Chancellor Anglia Ruskin University, he's returning and he's going back to Australia to take up the same post at Deakin University. And as I understand it, he's not going to be taking a pay cut. Sarah, tell me, what makes a good Vice-Chancellor? Well, I think the role of the Vice-Chancellor has really evolved in the past decade and we've got to look at why that is and it's got to be in the context of what value UK universities give to the UK economy. So basically, they're generating over £100 billion and they support over 900,000 jobs. So they represent about 1.2% of GDP. So the role is therefore extremely high profile. And I think in terms of skills, they've got to be really excellent leaders. They've got to be really inspiring and they've got to be fully committed. So I think in the old days, you could say that vice chancellors could take off the summer holidays. But now they're going to take probably a maximum of two weeks because basically they've got to be around their universities when they're going through clearing. I think they've also got to be really resilient. I think it's fair to say that the average tenure of a vice chancellor is possibly only five years now, so they've got less time really to make an impact and show some success. That's um, quite surprising actually, so that the tenure is now much lower than a FTSE 100 chief executive. Uh, If we look at the pay disparity there, and I know it's not like for like, but the Average chief executive was paid £5.7 million across the FTSE 100 last year. Is there an argument that we're not paying these vice chancellors enough? Well, yeah, globally in truth, we probably aren't. But And certainly compared to the private sector, we're not. But I think in the context of UK society, I, I really actually think we are. If I draw you back to my earlier point, there is really only a handful of vice chancellors who are under this scrutiny. And perhaps that's got to be more in line with the size and governance of that university. That's really what's got to be taken into account. I think possibly we also have to consider their results, where they sit in the league tables. But where I think we've got to consider the most unprecedented challenge that's going to hit vice-chancellors and their universities, it's really going to be in the form of Brexit. And how do you see their roles changing once we leave the EU or as we prepare to leave the EU? Well, there's certainly going to be significantly more pressure on vice-chancellors and what they do. I mean, they've got to face pressure here at home. We're having a downturn in the demographic of students, i.e. the number of school leavers who are going to be eligible to go to university, and that trend is going to continue for the next six years. So this is, this is the number of 18-year-olds leaving school is, is on a downward path? Yep, it's going to be on, on a downward trend now for about six to seven years. 
So therefore, it's really important for universities here in the UK to be able to draw their student population, not just from here, but also from mainland Europe and further afield. And I think my biggest worry is in a post-Brexit climate, are universities UK, are we going to look less attractive and therefore, you know, basically less welcoming to international students? And they make up a really significant proportion of both undergraduate and postgraduate students in a lot of universities. So vice chancellors then, they're going to have to, I don't know, I suppose they're going to have to have more commercial acumen. They've got to navigate through this. Therefore, they're going to have to have really good strategic planning capabilities. And I think they've got to think innovatively. They've possibly got to think more about mergers, certainly got to think about greater and better partnerships, and obviously maximising both their research and commercial incomes. How do you think our universities in the UK will respond to leaving the EU? Well, I think there's an awful lot they're going to have to think about, but I've worked in this sector for a very long time now, and I've always been truly impressed with the resilience and the capability of the people who work in higher education. So, yep, there are going to be challenges, but I certainly do remain positive and also committed to this really interesting and dynamic sector. Sarah, thank you for your insights and for joining us today. Thank you very much. To those of you who have joined us, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contribute to the debate, please do leave a comment or engage with us on Twitter and LinkedIn. You've been listening to the Interim Leader Podcast with your host, Grant Speed.